You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Jen Budd. She used to work as a Border Patrol agent, and now she's a whistleblower and an immigration activist. So we'd like to welcome Jen to our show. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Like before you got the job at Customs and Border Protection, like what did you do beforehand? Well, I would have to clarify that I was actually with the Border Patrol. It was before Customs and Border uh, Border Protection was developed after 9-11, I want to say around 2003. So it's it's a clarification. Most people don't understand the difference and it really doesn't matter, but I don't. You know, I don't want anybody to say we're trying to mislead people. So I grew up in Alabama and didn't really have much exposure, obviously, to the southwest border. And I am not Hispanic. I'm a white woman. So even though I have an education in law from Auburn University, I have a Bachelor of Science in Law. You know, we didn't talk about immigration, actually didn't specialize in that or anything. It's and it's a four year, not a not a law degree, a two year law degree. So basically I was looking for a job and somebody had said the Border Patrol was hiring and I had to admit I never heard of it. And I was just kind of told, you know, they keep drugs and other things, you know, I guess ill doers and terrorists and whatnot out of the United States. And it was a chance to move to California. And back then I knew I was gay. So that was a big push to being from Alabama. And then also my family life at home was always kind of rough and violent. And so I had graduated college and found myself kind of thinking, do I do law school? Do I, you know, and I decided I wanted to work because I had a lot of loans from college and So I joined the the Border Patrol. What year was it? That was June of 1995. I remember I was signing the papers here in San Diego on my birthday, so I had just turned 24. Once you joined, what kind of training were you given? How long was the training and what did they do? Um, The training back then was approximately four months. And they've gone through different variations of the academy, you know, after 9-11. President Bush had pushed so hard to get Border Patrol agents on the border, even though that's not where the terrorists came from. They didn't come across the southern border. They came in... Via visas, legally. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, somewhat legally, but even though they lied on their visas and so forth, so then the immigration would say, well, then that's illegal because they're not telling us the truth. But it's up to us to catch that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's what yeah. Our, our job is, or the immigration inspectors at the time, which now would be under CBP. That was their job at the time. But it, at any rate, they did not come across the southern border because there's much easier ways, you know, obviously to come across as they prove. But so, yeah, and back then they had dropped the academy down to 52 days, if you can imagine. <laughs> Most law enforcement academies, like a a decent size, like a... San Diego, for instance, their police academies are six months long, at least. But immigration, you don't have as many different laws that you're enforcing. So I could see it being shorter, but at the same time, you're supposed to be learning Spanish fluently. 
Now, of course, wow. there's a lot of native, what they refer to as native speakers, which are people who grew up speaking Spanish. And, you know, they could cut that off for them because obviously they're not having to learn the language. But in my four months, basically, we had just a quick overview of law because you have to realize at the same time that you're doing all these other classes, you're also doing firearms training and you're doing physical training and you're doing driving instructing and you're doing, you know, just everything at the same time. So even though four months might seem a long time to learn immigration law, and I think if you were just studying immigration law, that would probably be fine. But you're doing a lot of other things at the same time. Um, and certainly Spanish is one of them. So I wouldn't say fluent, but I spoke French pretty well when I was younger. And I took a lot of French classes. I took probably four or five, at least three years in high school. And, and you know, like a couple of classes in college. And I was pretty good with languages. And I found the Spanish to be very lacking. They, they, their famous saying is, our Spanish is the same as three courses in college, and I didn't find that to be true. And then their law was honestly pretty ridiculous. It was just like multiple choice, you know, 8 U.S.C. 1325 is what? It's entry without inspection. But that doesn't really, as a law enforcement officer, that's not really explaining to you what your powers are and how to actually implement that and enforce that with real people every day. You know, it's just telling you what the law's name is. And so I also found the instructors not willing to go very much in depth with like constitutional laws not taught at the academy, or at least it wasn't when I was there. What about history? Like, did they teach you anything about, say, Ronald Reagan arming death squads or the CIA coups in Central and South America? No. Okay, no. I know it's a joke, but I, I just have to ask because it's No, important. no, it's not a joke. I'm just saying because I think, you know, at the very least, they should have taught us the history of the Border Patrol and, mm -hmm. you know, and how it's born from racism and stuff. And I mean, I obviously got some clues and started to feel, you know, it might not be all that I signed up for, but started to feel that way in the academy. But no, they didn't, they didn't teach history or anything like that. It's, you know, once you, I've been away from it for so many years, I recognize the amount of propaganda and stuff that is taught to us, but it's all about how great we are as agents and how, you know, the public doesn't understand what we do, but we're keeping America safe and we're heroes. And so it's very, you know, propaganda based. Wow. That came as a surprise to me. And this wasn't during the Clinton years. So during your time in the 90s, I know that Clinton had a speech in 94, I believe, where he he actually said, make America great again. And he also talked about deporting. He used the word illegal immigrants. But was the border militarized back then? As in, like, were you guys in full military gear? Did you guys have all the weapons? Or was it different? Basically, it was a lot different back then. You know, your first question was about our equipment. Mm -hmm. I actually, our class was the 288th, and we were the last class to get revolvers. I mean, you know, we had, obviously, the semi-automatic pistols back then, but they didn't have the leather gear for it. There's a different style of leather gear, holsters and stuff. So I actually had a three fifty seven six-shooter revolver. And I had a radio that didn't work worth a crap because I was up in the mountains in Campo, which is East County, San Diego. 
and I had a baton and a pair of handcuffs. We had a few sensors, you know, that could alert us if somebody's walking down a path or, or driving through an area. We didn't have a fence. There was just a little barbed wire area in some places that designated this is Mexico, this is the United States. And it was more of a community back then. You know, the kids would come across and say, hey, can we play soccer here because there's no flat area down, you know, by our house. And it'd be like, yeah, sure. Okay, you know, be careful. And we play soccer with the kids when it was quiet. And then in some areas of Campo, the border road on the U.S. side is the only east-west road. So the families from Mexico would gen- would usually use that road to walk back and forth between the houses. And we knew who they were and they knew who we were and, you know, and they had family on the north side and they would meet for the holidays and stuff and we didn't bother them and they didn't bother us. And if they needed help, we helped them. It was more of a community back then before the fence came up. And no, we, we weren't militarized in the least bit, not in the least bit. When did the fence come up? Uh, it came up when I was out there. I think when I first got out there, it had just come to the west side of our jurisdiction. And that line was drawn at the Takati port of entry. And then we had 32 miles to the east. So they had started building from the ocean, basically, and then we're going east. And it had just started in Takati. And so I would say probably in my area, it was being built roughly from like 96, maybe the end of 95 at the earliest, probably on through to, you know, 97, 98, because it takes quite a long time for that to happen. Also, were there immigration detention facilities when you were around? Um, No, we didn't hold asylum seekers. It's not legal to hold asylum seekers because it's not a crime. (laughs) And the point of asylum is that it's no longer safe in your country, so you can't apply for asylum in your country. You have to come to the first safe harbor. Right. And, you know, I know there's a lot of confusion with the terminology and stuff. So basically the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker is refugee is somebody who is able to make the claim while they're in a different country, whether it be their country or, you know, so they're not setting foot on U.S. soil. An asylum seeker is somebody who literally knocks on the door. You know, the the claim is pretty much the same, that they can't stay in their country, but the difference is just where they're making that claim. That makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. So how did things change after the fence? So once the fence came up, you know, and then it wasn't just the fence. It's a lot of it was to, like, the stations down here in San Diego in town that had the fence were then like most of my classmates went to Imperial Beach, which is from the ocean on in, you know, and and once the station got built up with a lot of agents and they could push the migrants, it, it ended up having the effect of pushing the migrants out further east. And it kept going and going and going until it finally got to Campo. So then Campo was trying to get its supposed fence up. And So it was a combination of the fence and then a lot of agents making it difficult to cross. And that effect was that in Campo, the death tolls started rising because Campo is a high desert area. And 
So what that means is in the summertime, it can get to 110 plus, and then in the wintertime, it snows. And so we see deaths in both summer and wintertime, whether they're dehydrating and dying because of uh, heat stroke and so forth, or they're freezing to death. And But it wasn't as common until the fence came up and until they started beefing up the amount of agents that were on the border. And so the argument from immigration rights groups when I was an agent was that your fence is killing people. And the argument that we were told to tell people was, well, stop crossing. And that's a simplistic view, but it doesn't take into account that people are coming from desperate situations and you're creating an obstacle course for them to die in. Exactly. And for our longtime listeners, we have done um, episodes on the Guatemalan death squad, uh, the whole genocide there. We've done a lot on Honduras and El Salvador. So they know what they're fleeing there. Um, go on. Right. And, I, you know, I think even back then, I know that the majority of crossers were single Mexican males looking for work, not necessarily claiming asylum. But there were also a lot of people claiming asylum because in Campo, it was not uncommon to, you know, people from China and people from, I've even apprehended people from Israel, Africa, all sorts of places. So the numbers suggest that it was mostly Mexican citizens seeking work, but there were a lot of asylum seekers back then too. It was just handled differently. And at some point I started to realize no, it is the fence, and it, we are pushing them out there. And when you find a dead body out there of a migrant, you, as a Border Patrol agent, sit with that body until the medical examiner flies out in a helicopter and looks out the window and says, yep, they're dead, and then throws a body bag out to you. I don't know if it's changed now, but that's how it used to be. So you're, you're left sitting there with this person that you realize you know, just lost their life because they're just looking for a better life. And that was 99.9% of the apprehensions out there were just simply people looking for a better life. They did not come up with criminal records or anything like that. And that's the same today. So at some point, obviously, I started questioning what I was doing and the policies that I was enforcing, what effect they were having on um pretty much just innocent people, you know. One thing you mention on your website is the culture of sexual harassment even within the agency. Would you mind talking a little bit about it? The Border Patrol, you know, when I entered the academy, it starts from day one. I can't say if they still do this today, but I know like the chief of the Border Patrol now, Carla Provost, she graduated a month before I went in and we were in the same academy and likely had the same instructors. So I know she had this training as well. But the very first day they separated the men from the women and with the excuse of we need to talk to the women to wear their hair make up earrings. And they didn't really say what to talk to the men about. They they made it seem like, you know, they were taking us off to give us like some sort of sex ed and how to you know, like you're in fifth grade or something. And I, I remember I was like, what is going on? You know, I didn't get it. And then the guys told me afterwards that they were told that women did not belong in the patrol. So the real purpose was to have a man-on-man conversation. Holy God. And of course, the fact that they told you about your dress and makeup seems like it's victim blaming because it shouldn't matter how short your dress or what dress you wear or what makeup you wear. 
you don't deserve to be sexually assaulted. <laughs> no, I, I think they were just telling us more as, you know, like in the military, we expect your hair to be off your collar kind of thing. It, it wasn't in that sense. And so I don't oh, okay. want to make that impression. It was more like proper attire and what the Border Patrol expects of us, you know, no giant hoop earrings because they can be dangerous and that kind of thing. Oh, that but, kind of stuff. Yeah. But with the men, it was the women can't hack it. It's Holy really God. hard. And they designed the physical training to be uh, more geared towards men. The men actually don't, you know, men that are overweight and stuff do just fine. And, you know, I lost 30 pounds in the academy and you have to be over at my age, I would have had to be over a hundred percent physically fit. And I was to be able to pass. So women typically end up getting kicked out because the like obstacle course and everything is designed for upper body. And they say, well, this is because this is what you have to do in the field. And the truth is, is you do have to do some of that in the field, but not really much of that. You know, it's more hiking and stuff. Which women are perfectly capable uh, of doing. And oddly enough, it seems to be in most other countries, women seem to be doing police work equally as men and with no problem so right and there were women obviously I made it you know and 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 so and it's kept that standard we have to run the same times as the men do and and you know and there's men that couldn't make it there's men that dropped out too so I mean I think if you look at it percentage wise I don't know what it would be but you know there's a fair amount of men that don't make it because they can't make the physical qualification so it's not just women that can't you know that have a hard time with it and it is physically demanding and that's you know it is a physically demanding job. But their point with the men was that they they actually told them, you have to be careful when you date these women because if they start failing, you know, and it looks like they're going to fail, then what they do is they file what they call an EEO, which is an equal employment opportunity saying that you're discriminating against women because of their gender. And they do that when you hit on them and that's their surefire way of staying in the academy and graduating, which is nonsense. But they set this tone that women couldn't hack it and women were a bunch of whiners, is what they said. And also secretly manipulative. Like, it seems like somebody you can't absolutely. trust. So, yeah, so uh, And there goes the workplace camaraderie. Yeah. They would say, you know, don't ever have a meeting with a woman privately. Always have another agent with you to witness it because they might claim you tried to sexually assault them. Meanwhile... Our education came from the women who were ahead of us in class, and they met with us privately at night in our bedrooms and said, okay, this is the real deal. Don't leave your drink alone when you're at the campus bar because they'll slip you drugs and rape you, and don't do this and don't do that. And, you know, I was sexually assaulted by a classmate, and nothing happened, and they tried to make me file a grievance, and I didn't want to because it would stop my training in the academy, they told me. And I would have to go through with another class and I needed that job, you know. They won't allow you to call the police from, you know, like the local sheriffs or the local police department because it was a federal academy and they were like, no, no, we'll handle this from the inside and stuff. So there's a lot of that going on. So for me, what's more disturbing is that if it's going on with other agents who have reasonable amount of power, God knows what's going on with the detainee women who don't speak the language or from another country who probably don't have any family. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the statistics of the amount, and this is just what's reported, the amount of claims against agents from migrants of 
either sexual harassment, but more, more likely sexual abuse and nothing happens with them. I mean, you know, they have this obnoxious clearing rate of, Oh, nothing was found. Nothing was found. Nothing was found. And yeah, so it's, it's a huge problem. It's something that probably should call more light to because I don't think people realize how high the numbers are of the complaints. I was looking at one case. I can't remember the agent. I think he may be from San Diego, but I'm not sure. But they finally caught him after he raped four women. And the last one got pregnant. And that was the one where she was a minor and you just can't get pregnant. Like you just don't magically get pregnant. And that's how he got caught. So I know you quit around 9-11, but what led up to having, like, what were the things that you saw along the way that made you quit? Well, I mean, the atmosphere at the station was always very harsh towards me because my station was, back in the day, only about 52, 54 agents. And although there were two other females assigned to Campo, they were always away at detail, like, assigned to maybe the academy to teach or to sector to teach something else. And so I never saw them. So I was all alone there for quite some time. And, you know, I just got constantly harassed every day with like used condoms in my mailbox. And, and uh, they just kind of wanted me to be more their secretary. One had said I should be a cheerleader for them and that's all I was good for and stuff. So I ended up a lot of times just because they would take all the vehicles and take the keys and hide them from me so I couldn't go out and patrol. I would just take my gear and put it in a backpack and just hike down to the border and patrol on foot. I mean, eventually that, that stopped and we got more vehicles and, you know, we got more people and so forth. But I had moments where I, cause camp was so isolated when I apprehended somebody, there's a lot of time to talk because you're waiting for transport or sometimes I'd have to hike my apprehensions back to the station because nobody would answer the radio or back me up. And so I had a lot of time to talk and learn Spanish and, or, you know, a lot of people speak English anyhow. And we'd, you know, I would learn about their lives and I would learn about why they're crossing things that I wasn't taught in the border patrol. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter and Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. Can you give us a story or like one or two stories that's just stuck most out in your mind? Well, I mean, I remember my very first apprehension as a trainee. I jumped out of the van that they had shoved the trainees in. And, you know, I'm expecting, you know, young men smuggling drugs and stuff. And it was a family with a baby. And I'm like, okay, where are the drugs, you know? And it just got to be more and more like that. And I remember a family member had called me and said, how do you like your new job? And I said, I feel like a Nazi. (laughs) because, and those were my real words. I said, I arrested a family that was coming here looking for work. And I don't know if that's the majority of what I'm going to be arresting or, you know, so there was another time when I had apprehended a group. It was a long hike up 
the Takati Mountains, and I finally caught up to them. And but we were way out on the top of a mountain, and it, you know, back then we were taught, you know, once they're in your custody, they're your responsibility. If they fall down a mountain, then you know you're responsible. And so I was waiting for transport to come and then help me safely get them down the boulders and the mountains that we had hiked up and climbed over. And I'm by myself. We don't have partners. You work by yourself. And, you know, just to tell you how amicable and polite most of the people I was arresting were, it's, you only have one pair of handcuffs. That was in a time where we didn't have those flexible handcuffs that we could carry with us. And so we just sat on the boulders and talked for a couple of hours. And one of the guys spoke perfect English and he actually had a law degree. So he said, you know, do you treat people this way that come in through Canada? I knew that there were a lot of people here from Canada who maybe had entered legally but had overstayed their visas. So there were a lot of people in violation of their status here, but nobody ever did anything about it. And I had to kind of think about it. And I said, no, we don't track them down, you know, in the middle of nowhere, make them cross out here to try and find a job and so forth. And he said, well, why do you think that is? You know, and he's asking me this, obviously, because he's trying to get me to think he has a law degree and he's trying to get me to think about my actions. And I, I had to pause and I was thinking and he, he kind of chuckled and I said, yeah, I know what you're getting at. You're getting it that we're doing this because of the color of your skin. And I honestly, I, I cannot come up with another reason why. So there were instances like that where I started to think about things. And then there were a lot of instances of agents getting caught smuggling drugs themselves. And there were a lot of instances, a lot, a lot of instances of, if not illegal, just downright unethical and immoral behavior, like agents meeting their apprehensions that they found to be attractive that night later on down south in Mexico for dates and things like that. So, you know, just and the atmosphere in the station was just always one of a frat house constantly. And there were agents just drunk driving all the time and beating their wives and nothing ever happened to them. And it just was a cesspool, just a cesspool. And it's like, I'm, I'm spending my time arresting people who I don't find dangerous at all. And I actually enjoy talking to and hearing about their lives and stuff. And they're not criminals especially after I run their fingerprints, they're not criminals, but I'm surrounded by all these men who are literally committing crimes and getting away with it constantly. And so I would go on detail, like to sector, my last year was at sector intelligence. And that's, that's a way to get out of that cesspool and to get out of that field. And you get into a smaller group of agents that are more, interested in law enforcement, more highly trained and so forth. And intelligence is like that at the sector level. And I started researching because I had been told by some DE agents that I worked with on a drug task force that it was likely that the boss of my own station was the one that was organizing the smuggling of narcotics through the Campo area. And so as an intelligence agent, I started looking into that and that is what I was finding. Everything was pointing towards that. And I kind of tipped my hand to see if he would react if, you know, I kind of lured him in a bit and he did. And he got me alone in an office and threatened me. And then I went to and admitted that that's what he was doing. And then I went to sector 
it to my bosses at sector headquarters and said, okay, this is what happened. He admitted it. We got to, I got to go talk to the FBI or DEA. Can you make this happen? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, mm, maybe you misunderstood. And I'm like, mm, no, I didn't misunderstand. <laughs> and then they ordered me to stay silent and that wow. I wasn't going to go to the FBI and I wasn't going to do go to the DEA. And if I did, I would be written up and I would be terminated. But, or I had the choice of, they would put out a job at Sector that would be a promotion for me to a supervisory position, and everybody could put in for it, but they were going to pick me the whole time. And so it wouldn't look like, you know, it was set up just for me, but that would get me out of go having to go back to Campo once my detail as an intelligence officer was over. And I said, you know, this is the type of I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I that's so corrupt. Offering to do this. This is so corrupt. And I said, no, I'm not going to be that type of agent that sits here and takes a promotion just to shut up. I'm not going to, I cannot do that. We are going forward. And they're like, no, you're not going forward. And so I left not knowing what my actions were going to be. And I went, when I say I left, I, I left the sector headquarters and I was driving home. And then all of a sudden I get a call that I have to do a midnight shift in uniform out on the border in Campo, which doesn't make sense, right? Because I'm assigned to sector. And there was no mandatory like, overtime at that time. So it was a setup. Retaliation. Retaliation. And then I ended up, basically, the gist of it is, is I ended up getting shot at in the middle of the night. <gasps> oh, my God. Who shot you? Um, well, I don't know, because they were shooting from the fence. They made me the boss that was doing the smuggling or doing the organizing of the smuggling had ordered the supervisors to make me sit in a stationary position right on the fence that night, which didn't make any sense either. And then I all of a sudden automatic weapon fire comes across at about three o'clock in the morning and I'm on the radio. I'm trying to drive away because that's back in, we didn't shoot. I certainly didn't shoot south into Mexico when there are houses down there. I didn't know who I was going to, hit and I couldn't see anybody. I could just see the flash from the muzzle and the fence was right there. So they're shooting kind of like in between the fence at me. And so I was able to back up and get away. And, you know, I think if they wanted to kill me, they would have killed me. I think it was meant to be a warning fire and it was very close. I could hear it hitting the rocks on the outside. Wow. So I got out of there and got north to 300 yards and because of the terrain, I was safe. They couldn't see me and they couldn't hit me from there. And I'm calling on the radio and I'm calling my station and I'm calling the agents that are in the field, you know, shots fired, shots fired. And nobody is answering. It's just crickets on their radio and even dispatches crickets on their radio. But then all of a sudden, within five minutes, I see headlights coming towards me because it's the middle of the night and nowhere. So I can see, you know, headlights stick out and it's this boss this boss that's doing all the organizing, this boss who works a nine to five, Monday through Friday, is out here in the middle of nowhere at 3 a.m., drives up next to me. And I, of course, didn't know who it was. So I literally had my gun out and he couldn't see it because it was below the door frame, but it was aimed right at him. And I have my gun aimed at my boss. And he's like, oh, I heard on the radio that you were getting shot at. So I thought I would come out and see if you're okay. And I just, I was, I just was like, you know, my jaw probably was hitting the ground. And I just put the car in drive and drove back to the station and turned it in. And the supervisor said, what are you leaving? And I said, yeah, I'm sick. And I just left. 
And I went home and told my, well, she was my girlfriend then, but is now my wife. I said, uh, I have to get the hell out of there. I'm going to die. And, you know, I don't even believe in what I'm doing anymore. So I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I have to leave. And that was the end of it. So. If it happens to you, God knows what has happened that we don't hear about. One thing that I'm curious is um, recently in an MSNBC interview, you said that during your training, they made you use derogatory terms for migrants. Like, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Well, there are two terms that are used in the Border Patrol that are racist. One is one that most Americans know, and I prefer to use it like, you know, how we say today the N-word. I prefer to use it like that. So the term that Texas agents use is the WB word. And the term that Border Patrol agents in like California and that are more land, the border is more of a land crossing like California and Arizona, use one that I refer to as the T word. And I don't, you know, I used to say what they were, but I don't, I think legally, if I ever had to testify, I would say the word, but I don't see the reason to say the word because then maybe people would repeat it and I don't want to spread it. Oh, no worries. But it was derogatory terminology and they used it in the academy, right? Some people say, oh, you know, that I can't prove that and stuff. And But well, I can't prove a lot of things, but I didn't. I mean, you know, if nobody's going to back me up, then it's just my word against theirs. But I'm pretty confident in what I saw and what I heard and what I remember. So, but I did not know that word, had never heard of that word before. And it was taught to me by my law instructor who was a Texas agent. And he said, this is the term that you used to refer to. And at that time we always said, and the border patrol still does illegal aliens. And so that, and they said, you know, that this word is if somebody from the outside, like the press or, you know, a friend or somebody asked you what that word meant, you say, oh, it means that they're temporarily out of their native country. And, but amongst the border patrol agents, it's the word for the sound that a flashlight makes when you hit a migrant in the head with it. Oh boy. And then I found the other day that, and you have to remember the internet wasn't as big as it is now. And, and we didn't have social media and stuff back then, but I did find just a few days ago there's a website that caters to Border Patrol memorabilia and gear and T-shirts and stuff. And they actually have T-shirts that have a flashlight printed on the front and the T-word printed on the front. So, oh and God. yeah, and there's been agents that have testified to this in court before there was uh, just recently. And so, you know, yes, they do use it all the time. And that is how... I learned the word. And when I say that they judged you on whether or not you used it, I, my post Academy instructor was like, what do you have a problem using it? And I was like, no. <laughs> and, and I never thought of myself as prejudiced. I never thought of myself as a racist, but I did use that term and that's on me. You know, my instructor should not have taught us that the border patrol shouldn't be using that. But at the same time, I should have been, strong enough to sit there and say, I'm not going to use that. But I did use that. I mean, it's a system that's rotten. No single agent makes it rotten. And so it seems like there's kind of a dehumanization training. I know you quit, but you still work with a lot of migrants. 
So can we talk a little bit about how things changed after 9-11 and what happened during the Obama eras to what happened now? Like, how did it get harsher after 9-11? You know, I think, you know, watching from the outside and then also, you know, I still had contact, obviously, for quite a long time with agents that I worked with. They were pretty happy after 9-11 because, I mean, and, and I'm not saying they're happy that 9-11 happened. I'm, I don't want to insinuate that at all, but they were happy with the power and the amount of money that they were getting. And they could, I remember one agent said we could justify any stop basically by just saying national security issue. And what happened is there is a right wing anti-immigrant hate group that has been labeled as such by the Southern Poverty Law Center called FAIR. The acronym is FAIR, and that's the Federation for American Immigration Reform. And what they have been trying to align themselves with the Border Patrol for quite some time. And the way they finally figured out how to do it was they went through the union. And this is just judging from the outside. I don't have any like internal documents or anything. But I had noticed after 9-11 that, you know, union reps and the higher ups in the union, and they are border patrol agents, were asked to speak at their conferences, I guess you would call them and so forth. And so they were kind of courting the union agents that way and telling them how great they were and this and that, and we support you and, and, you know, patting them on the back and telling them they were heroes for what they were doing and this and that. And then the union's website started having links to FAIR's website. And they were telling their agents, you know, if you want to talk to anybody about immigration, your family or anybody you know, or anybody from church, this is the, the, you know, go to FAIR's website and they have all the information you need and all the data to prove, you know, that what we're doing is patriotic and necessary. And FAIR's data is at best just misleading and misrepresented. And at worst, it's outright false and it's racist, and it's meant to support racist memes, and their founders have been proven to have made extremely racist comments and and so forth. One of the founders is from Michigan, and he is a billionaire, right? Yeah, and he's well known for his, America's turning less white and more, and they tend to use the word European, which is code for white. Uh, Yeah, and so... This is what's been going on for, you know, at least a decade, if not more, obviously. And so then the Border Patrol agents are getting fed this propaganda, this bad information, and they're repeating it. And they're repeating this in the academies and stuff. And then you see when the union goes on television, so when a Border Patrol agent speaking on television, he's usually a, a union agent or a press agent. And they are given all these talking points from this organization. And then when they go to Congress, it's the union agents that are doing this. So their influence is totally based from this hate group. And that is where they're getting their information. And now that Trump is in there, they've taken a lot of the former directors of FAIR, this hate group, and put them in charge of the various immigration agencies. So now you have... Yeah, now you have hate group former directors dictating the policy that is going on in the various different, you know, whether it's 
CBP or Border Patrol or Customs or whatever. And so it's kind of just come full circle in that the agencies that are involved in immigration are being infested with this information and it's just being regurgitated and circled around and so it's this complete circle now. Wow. Um, I did not expect this because I have a friend, um, Tina, and she has a lawyer friend who got all these documents released from the University of Michigan where he used to be part of the Sierra Club and he would spread propaganda about how migrants, I don't know, create garbage and spread diseases or whatever. So this really shocks me. Um, How much of this do you think is nativist racism and how much? Well, because um, it seems like Customs and Border Patrol gets a lot of private prison contracts. Like, how much of it is the profit motive, in your opinion? I think it's it's both. I think it's racist people trying to figure out how to make a profit. You know, I mean... Okay, so you can't separate them. (laughs) I don't think you can separate them because I noticed, you know, when Obama announced that he was going to end private contracting with federal government, Uh um, you can look at the lobbyist documents on the congressional website, whether you're talking about the Senate or the House, and you can see that when that happened or when they saw that this was going to start happening... What the prison geo group and core civic did specifically more geo group did was they sent their lobbyists specifically to Jeff Sessions and a couple other people, but really hardcore to Jeff Sessions. And they say actually on the lobbying documents that they were going there to talk to Jeff Sessions about private prison industry in regards to the immigration service in regards to immigrants. So this plan of putting immigrants in these private prisons for profit was planned before Trump even became president. And Jeff Sessions is part of that. And a lot of Jeff Sessions prior staff, not a lot, but, you know, some, a handful of Jeff Sessions prior staff in the Senate, when Jeff Sessions left to become the attorney general under Trump, they left and now are management and board members of groups like Geo Group and Core Civic. My God, that's quite it's a revolting thing, isn't it? It's just like you're just like, wow. It's and I think this should be getting more attention, and no one's giving it attention. Um, I'll be sure. Well, to- I don't think people are interested in it. I think part of it's part of the plan is that the news media is so overrun with these salacious stories on all fronts and that's done on purpose it's overwhelming the media so you can't get a really good picture of the in-depth issues and how these things are planned i know a lot of i think a lot of people think trump just came in and changed everything well no he did come in and just change everything the system has been made this way so that trump could come in and then make all these changes and stuff so you know trump is just the icing on the cake Exactly. And thankfully, we're independent media, and I love looking through old, boring documents. Like, that's like half of (laughs) what I do. So if you can, like, after we hang up, if you can send me anything, I will give it as much attention as I can give it. But so I did not realize that the private prison people had actually had all this planned before Trump went into office. And that's very, 
So off the top of your head, like how much does it cost to keep a migrant at a private prison per night? I, I'm not sure how much like geo and course I do know I've heard that in the camps that are think are kind of different. So the camps for the children. Hold on. Would you mind just differentiating the different facilities? Because most of us don't understand. Like what was the facility that AOC visited last week versus uh, yeah, the detention? Yeah. So that's a border patrol station. And in border patrol stations, they the detention space is like a drunk tank. So they don't have beds. They're just meant to process people and then, you know, send them back to, in my day, send them back to Mexico under voluntary return. So there's no beds. There's a t- one toilet with like a, a little pony wall to give them a little bit of privacy, but it's just benches and you're supposed to process them. And in today's terms, because most people are asylum seekers, you would process them, check them, make sure they're not criminals. Once you find they're not a criminal, you don't have the right to infringe upon their liberty and you send them on their way. But of course, you know, that's the loophole that Trump is exploiting in the asylum process is that he's keeping them and there's no, nobody willing to check him on that. Um, So that is a border patrol run station. And then they have for the separated children, they have contracted out to private companies like Southwest Key, I believe is what it's called. And there are other ones. Basically they're like, homes for orphans, kind of. And, you know, there are various places. Some are buildings and some are actual literal homes. And then, and I think those places are, I've read are about $750 a day or something to house one child, which is a lot of money. So somebody's making a lot of profit by just keeping these kids away from their families and people they love. Right. And then, On the other side of it, as far as detention facilities, then you have the bigger companies, the private prisons like CoreCivic and Geo Group. And they are the ones that are housing asylum seekers. And some people could be criminal migrants that maybe were convicted of drug charges or murder and deported, but then have reentered. So then they have to obviously be held on to and dealt with. But Amongst them are a lot of innocent people just waiting for their asylum hearings and waiting to know what's happening. And at the same time, there are some Americans that are being held that the immigration services, for some reason, are doubting their citizenship. And there are also veterans that are being held because they served in our military, um, but they, you know, they came back with PTSD and have maybe a drug charge against them or something, didn't get their citizenship before they got this drug charge. They served their time for what they did. And because they did a crime, now they're going to deport them. So there's a whole mix of people that are trapped up in these systems, uh, these detention centers, these camps. And then on top of it now, the Border Patrol, and I should say probably CBP is more DHS, is building the camps on military bases. And that is to hide migrants and asylum seekers from the press, from the public, because we keep seeing what is happening to them. And it's also to keep them from their attorneys and deny them access to to legal assistance. Okay, so if they can't get their attorneys, then at their hearings, it's like they're probably confused and 
they'll probably not get a good fair shot at their hearing. Yeah, there's statistics on that off the top of my head. I can't think of Don't what worry it about is, it. but like when they have an attorney, the rate of getting the point across that this person is really in danger and needs our help and needs to needs to come here and be part of our community is far greater when they, of course, have an attorney. Do you have anything else you'd like to say that I didn't ask about or I didn't think to ask about? I want to say that the border is being militarized, and I don't think that we get to see a lot of that. And the communities down here on the border, I mean, I've obviously fallen in love with them, and I love the people. And I'm not saying that there aren't dangerous people. There are dangerous people in all communities. But the people who live here don't get a chance to have any say in how their communities are policed. And the tax dollars being spent in their communities are all towards this militarization. And it's not going to their schools. And it's not going to having clean air and water. And it's not going to, you know, education and and, and healthcare and all sorts of stuff. And I think that when we talk about the border in the future, we need to, there's obviously always going to be a need for law enforcement. But it's not greater than the need for humanitarian aid because we're going to continue having asylum seekers. We're going to continue having refugees because of climate change and because of our policies. And we've sunk a lot of money since 9-11 into the Border Patrol and law enforcement. And I mean, there were a lot of changes that needed to happen, obviously, because the world was changing. But for a couple of decades now, we've seen that the migration demographics, the people, the demographics of the people coming to our southern border have changed more from workers to asylum seekers and refugees. And we have not committed any kind of funding to that infrastructure. And that's why you're seeing what we're having now. So, and that was done on purpose. Don't get me wrong. We are trying to apply for racist, xenophobic reasons. We're applying a law enforcement tool, the Border Patrol, to a humanitarian need. And it is the wrong tool. And we need to have more asylum officers who are trained uh, in this area and knowing what the dangers these people are facing that are specific to their countries. And we need to have facilities that can house asylum seekers as family units that are healthy and, you know, free of lice and scabies and disease and, and, and can meet their nutritional needs. And just like we would, you know, for the homeless or, or our veterans or anybody else, and that's a whole nother topic, to process them. And we make the determination, is this person dangerous to our society or are they not? If we cannot determine that that's the case, then they should be welcomed into our community. There's plenty of room in our communities in the United States. Immigrants are what drives our economy. They are what makes us unique as a nation. And unless we were brought here on, our ancestors were brought here on slave ships, or your ancestors are native, then you are from immigrants too. And, you know, I think we need to, I think part of the problem too is Democrats have not been brave about talking about where we praise immigrants and we love immigrants and there's a proper way to do this. And I think they need to be brave. And I'm glad like Julian Castro has an actual immigration plan 
And I think he's moving towards more towards, yes, we need law enforcement, but we also need humanitarian immigration plan. And I, I think we need to be bold and we need to state as such and, and let people decide on their own. Do you want these racist policies and you want to treat people like this? And I think most Americans really don't when they see it. Or do you want to have a system that, you know, looks at people who are coming to our border, decides whether they're bad or good, and then we either help people or, you know, we deal with the people that we've, you know, are criminals in, in such a way to protect ourselves. That was very powerful. Thank you, Jen. How would people find you on Twitter? My Twitter handle is my name backwards. So it's at Bud, U-D-D, Jen, J-E-N-N. And what do you plan to do in the near future? Do you plan on writing any books, any media appearances, or anything like that where they can learn more about this issue? Um, I keep trying to do as many media appearances as I can just because I know that it'll drop off. So the more attention that I can give to it, uh, you know, I got to take it while I can get it. <laughs> and then um, I work with deported veterans in Tijuana. And then I work with uh, the Southern Border Community Coalition here in San Diego. And I'm an ambassador with Define American. And so I've been invited to speak at law colleges and stuff. And, and so I just to share my experiences and, and to talk about what it is that I see and give my voice you know, I don't want to stand in front of the people who've been doing this for generations, especially the Latino community. Um, but I want to stand behind them. And if I can help amplify their voices, they're the ones that have been studying this for generations. They're the ones that this, these actions in immigration are directly affecting. And their voices should be amplified and heard the most in this. So that's that's my goal. Well, thank you so much for coming. And this was one of the most enlightening talks. And for you, next month it might be interesting because we have a professor from Rice University. His book has not been released yet, but he has wrote a book called The History of Borders. And it would be nice if you could hear him out and tell me what you think. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, have a great rest of the day. Thank you for the time. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.